Thank you, Elisa. Do you realise it's actually the last Sunday in winter? That means in three days' time, it's actually going to be spring. And, uh, and while we're in lockdown, there's lots of things where we can think of all of the places that we won't be able to go to because we're under lockdown in, in a beautiful springtime. Uh, one thing that it does enable us to do is, you know, gives us the opportunity to go, well, we're at home anyway, let's go to town, let's do the old spring clean, spruce things up. I know we did it a couple of weeks back and worked out that our spare room had a floor. Um, who knew? But uh, the idea of, of spring cleaning, I suspect, must have come from... The, this, this, having this huge annual clean must have come from being cooped up during the dark and damp European winter so that when spring comes, out comes the sun, out go the people and so it's a good time to just clean everything out, to just get some fresh air in. Well, that's what we're going to be doing a little bit in Ephesians today. Not, not so much a physical clean out, but we're going to have a spiritual clean out. Paul has been teaching the Ephesians about how God has given them new life in Christ. And so it's time to now, in, in Ephesians, to, to open the windows, to, to let the light shine in, to get rid of what belongs to the old dark life and to get busy showing forth the new. But I actually thought I might start in an interesting place. I thought we might talk a little bit about the thrilling thing that grammar is. Um, no, I... I You'll get why I'm going here in a minute. Um, you know about verbs, right? Verbs are, are a doing word, an action. So running, jumping, thinking, being. Well, some verbs describe stuff. They're called what's called indicative verbs. So they indicate what action is going on. So, so the boy ran down the street. Or Paul preached the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. God has reconciled us to one another in Christ. But then there's another kind of doing word that you come across in the Bible, and it's called an imperative. And the word comes from the Latin word imperator, which actually means emperor. And so kind of if you're thinking about a doing word that's an emperor doing word, it's, it's a word that's not describing something, it's the word for a command, something that's telling you something that you've got to do or not do. Now, up until now in the book of Ephesians, we're halfway through chapter 4. Up until now, do you know, there's only been one imperative in the entire book. And it was back in chapter 2, verse 11. It was the command to remember. Well, in our passage alone, there are 27 imperatives. And that tells you something. You, you, you see, so far in Ephesians, there's been... So much to celebrate about what a difference Jesus has made for us individually and as a people. And it's all been God's work, right? It's all been God's love. It's all been God's grace. It's all found in Christ. It's all empowered by the Holy Spirit. So it's God, God, God doing it. And that's being described to us. But now what we're going to find is that there is an ought that accompanies the is of being reconciled in Jesus. The new life that we've been given is now a new life. We've got to go out and live. We've got to do it. And that is the clear and unmistakable message of today's passage. You see, our God, our emperor, if you want to think about him that way, commands us. So have a look at verse 17 of chapter 4. 
So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Now remember, Paul's readers are mostly Gentiles, but they're physically Gentiles. But now they're Christians, they're no longer spiritually Gentiles. And that means that they must no longer live like the rest of the Gentile world did, with its old beliefs they used to share but don't any longer. You know, it's our thoughts and our desires that drive our actions. Well, if you look at verse 17 again, another way of putting it there is you must no longer walk, right, as the Gentiles walk. But notice that they're walking in a way of thinking. Their thinking governs the way they walk. The pattern of their lives was in accordance with the way they thought. And look how Paul describes the way they thought. It was futile, empty, purposeless, darkened understanding separated from the life that is in God because their sinful, hardened hearts have blinded their minds to him. And it's just as he described what it was to be a Gentile who was dead in their transgressions and sins, back in chapter 2. And that inner life that is darkened and ignorant of God has consequences for the behaviour that flows out of it. So look at what that is in verse 19. Having lost all sensitivity... They've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. Darkened inner life leads to a darkened outer life. But that's not the inner world of the Christian and so it mustn't be their outer world either. Paul's Gentile readership are no longer ignorant or darkened or hard-hearted or futile thinking and the reason is because they know Jesus now. That's what Paul says in verse 20. That, however, is not the way of life you've learnt. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. In other words, he's saying, you know better now. You know the truth that is in Jesus. And he's saying now that this inner knowledge has got to express itself in outward action. You know what the old life truly was and what God has called you to from before the creation of the world. Verse 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That's what we're to be like, like God in true righteousness and holiness. And so from this point, Paul outlines in practice what this looks like a bit, what putting off the old, what putting on the new really means in life. And so here's something that I want you to do straight away. If you haven't got it already um, in your home, grab a pad or, or something, and take some notes. Get a pen, a pad, a journal, open up the notes function on, on, on your phone or something. Because I want to say, if you're somebody who says, yes, I take the Word of God seriously, if you're someone who says, I recognise His authority over my life, 
I know him to be my saviour, but I also know that that means he's my Lord. Well, let me tell you, there's a whole lot of commands coming our way in the rest of this passage. They're commands that tell us what not to do. They're commands that tell us what we must do. They're challenges for how we act and how we think and the pattern that our lives tend to follow. They'll talk about goals that we're to be living for, danger areas that we must steer clear of. And so like with any good spring clean, it's worth actually making a list of which tasks need doing and especially marking out the ones that are most urgent. Whatever it is that God's Spirit challenges and encourages you with tonight, you don't want to forget it. So write it down. Talk about it. Because if ever a command earns the title imperative, it's when the living God has spoken it. All right, let's get practical about being, in practice, whom God has made us to be. First of all, Paul reminds us that as a new reconciled people of God, we're to relate differently now to those that are around us. In the rest of chapter 4, we're given five pairs of commands about rejecting the old and that call for a new, God-imitating, holy way of relating to one another. Now, each of these can apply to how we relate to all of the people around us, to the, to the world and at large. But what Paul is particularly focused on here and is paying attention to is the new way that Christians are to relate to each other because who we have been made in Christ. We have been called to be one new person. And so how we relate really matters. First is that we're to be people who speak the truth. Verse 25, therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. It seems like such an elementary starting point, doesn't it? Don't speak falsely, but speak the truth. But it's actually, if you think about it, so fundamental. All of what's happening is a response to the truth in Christ. So truth is what has got to be what we speak. And why do we speak it? Because we actually belong to one another, Paul says. We're members of one another. Now, by coincidence, the word for members of one body there is also the word from which we get our English word, melody. And I think there is something helpful about, conceptually, about bringing these two metaphors together, the body and melody. Because together, we are to play out a wonderful Christ-like tune before the world, before the heavenly realms, a tune that brings glory to God. And lies, deceit, falsehoods are jarring notes in that melody. You know, I often think that falsehood or if you're thinking about the old Ten Commandments, the bearing false witness, is a moral corruption that often slips under our radar as our attention gets drawn to other, perhaps more dramatic sins, you know, like the do not murder one. But the reality often is, is that those more dramatic sins actually began with falsehood in the first place. Actually, sin as a whole began with falsehood in the first place. 
And so often sins begin with a lie that we have told ourselves, convinced ourselves of, or a lie that we believed from somebody else that ended up corrupting our heart, twisting our thinking and causing us to stumble. Do you know, Satan, the Bible describes, as being a far, as the father of lies. Bearing false witness is his melody. It is not for God's people to join his choir. If you think about it, God's people must be people who speak the truth to one another. Because if we can't depend upon those who were meant to love us, who we're united with, who, who, if we can't depend upon them to be honest with us, who can we depend upon? Now, it's not going to be possible to explore all of the ways falsehood can creep into Christian speech. But, but let me highlight two ways that I think we can dress up falsehood as piety and by doing so actually harm the body like Paul says it does here. And the first one is when we lie in order to be nice. When we lie in order to be nice. Uh, Christians, in my experience, tend to be very nice people. We want to be positive. We want to encourage And so sometimes we lie in order to do that. We can straight out lie. So an example of that might be instead of giving kind but honest feedback, we we give flattering and dishonest feedback. Yes, kind but honest is often hard to do. It's hard to, to, to correct someone or say to someone that that something was wrong and do it gently. But you know, a person in the wrong role, doing the wrong thing and doing it badly because no one was prepared to tell them the truth is not loving for them or to those who are impacted by what they're doing badly or unhelpfully. That can actually have a kingdom impact. Second thing we can do is, is, is when we lie about hurts and offences just to keep the peace. Now, this time we say, no worries, it's okay, it didn't, didn't bother me at all. When it really, really did. Not because we're trying to be nice this time, just, we just want to avoid conflict. But the thing is, we don't forget it because we were offended and they did hurt us. And while they go ahead in ignorance, because they think everything's fine, because you actually falsely told them that everything was fine, in the meantime, you're secretly resenting them and they're oblivious. And you even sometimes share that resentment with others. And like the last example, something that could have been dealt with, could have been apologised for and forgiven, could have been resolved quickly, becomes a thing. A wedge has been driven into the relationship and the consequences of that wedge can spread. Something that may have needed correction, perhaps, something that needed to be said for the sake of the kingdom didn't end up getting said and so it gets perpetuated. And relationships that should be a melody are now a cacophony. 
Well, the second pair of putting offs and putting ons relates this time to anger. Verse 26, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Now, how? hang on, I can see what we're to get rid of here, but where's the positive command? Isn't there meant to be pairs of commands, a positive and a negative? Well, it's actually there in verse 26. It literally reads, be angry, but do not sin. Now, it's not encouraging us to say, hey, anger is great, go off and do it. What it's just saying is that, look, being angry is not always unchristian. In our sinful world, some stuff actually should get you angry. And some stuff just will get you angry. God gets angry, Jesus got angry, and Christians will get angry. But where to get angry Christianly? Where to look to our God, where to see how he reacts to wrongdoing and offence. And we're to remember, because when we do look to him, we'll see a God who is slow to anger. His anger is never reckless or wild. It's never disproportional. And he is quick to show mercy, quick to forgive, even to the extent of expending his righteous anger at our own sin upon himself at the cross. The command to us here is, when you get angry, because something has gotten you angry, don't let your anger make you forget who you are in Christ. Never forget who you are in Christ and who others need to be for you. Do not let anger lead you into sin. Do not hold on to anger and harbour it but rather be eager to let it go. If you don't, you see, Paul says you run the danger of letting the evil one get his foot in the door because he loves to ruin relationships and and to destroy Christians and to bring bad into the presence of what should be good. It's a short step, isn't it, from being justifiably angry at something to being sinfully violent or abusive in your speech or harsh. It's a very short step from justifiable anger to sinful hatred, bitterness, a hardened and unforgiving heart. As an aside, the ease with which anger can lead us to sin is also the reason why we shouldn't be readily placing ourselves in situations that we know tend to provoke us to anger. There's got to be wisdom here. And so if you find, for example, one might be, if you find that Social media threads often provoke you or cause you to stumble because you become a keyboard warrior or because the rants of a keyboard warrior just wind you up. Steer clear of them. It's not healthy to feed anger. You see, anger is like a door blown open by the storm of life. That happens. But when it does, we need to close that door as soon as we can because the longer the door remains open, the more stuff from outside blows in and pollutes the house. Third, God commands us to be productive and generous. 28, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer but must work 
doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. See, with new life comes a new way of thinking about what we put our hands to do. We're to cultivate a generous spirit that conforms with the generosity of the God that we know. We're to reject the way of the thief, especially if we are a thief. You know, you know theft is, is so astoundingly selfish and envious. It's happy for other people to work for things and we take it from them. Now, I take it that we realise that there are actually other ways to be a thief than just walking in somewhere and physically taking something that doesn't belong to us. You know, theft can be taking anything that we're not actually entitled to, that we haven't earned or that we haven't been given, including government allowances, work benefits, entertainment services, intellectual property. You know, rather than seeing others' possessions as something that we really are entitled to, and so instead of working, we lazily seize them for ourselves, we're to work hard so that we can actually accumulate things that we can share with other people, so that we can share our possessions for the benefit of others. You see, it's not just don't steal, it is labour for other people. Replace your untrustworthiness not merely with a new reliability but with a generous and giving heart like God has. Fourth, as people who have been created to be like God in all righteousness and holiness, we're to have transformed speech. Verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Now, the word for unwholesome there has the idea of corrupting associated with it. And speech can do that. You know, it might be crudities that you put out there, it might be swearing, but it can even... Have you ever been in a conversation where the whole tone moves where it shouldn't and somehow you've just been caught up in all of that? Have you ever been exchanging banter with the boys or with the girls? And it's descended to the point where the conversation has become far from wholesome. Christian speech should not be the kind of speech that has a decaying or polluting effect. Nor should our interactions on social media it's not okay. The only things that should leave a Christian's mouth or keyboard should be words that are good, words that meet the needs of others and give grace to those who hear or read it. It's a very different bar, isn't it? Corruptive versus constructive. Harmful versus beneficial. Why, as a Christian would we be sitting there and speaking over on this side of the equation? Now, there's more, going to be more about this later in the passage. Well, the fifth command pairing sums up this section. Verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God 
with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Get rid of it. And it's very powerfully put, I think. It really struck me. I mean, let me paint what Paul has built up for us in the first three chapters of Ephesians. Consider the glorious majesty of what God has achieved for us in Christ. Consider the preciousness that we now understand from Ephesians 1 to 3 of what Christian fellowship is and should be. The beauty of Christian unity in Christ and reconciliation. The, The great purpose of being a holy and blameless people fit for God to dwell amongst by his spirit. Picture those wonderful lofty things and then stick in bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander and malice in the middle of it all. What what, what a pollution, how sad, what a tragic spoiling of something magnificent. And so that's why the command comes, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Do not, and and the striking, striking thing is this says you can do it, right? Do not sadden the one who is the promise of your redemption by making him dwell amongst a divided and hostile community. That's what happens when we let this dirty stuff stay around and we don't resolve things, when we don't reconcile with one another, when we don't seek peace. No, don't grieve the Spirit. Here's what Paul says, honour the Spirit. Verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as in Christ God forgave you. That is what honours God. Because this is what God himself is like. And therefore, that is what we, his people, are to be like. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's be fragrant. Let's be a melody. Well, our spiritual spring clean now shifts from how we relate to one another as a body to addressing our inner world, what we desire, how we think, and then how those things work themselves out in our lives. And at this point, Paul, can I say, he's uncompromising on this. He doesn't pull any punches. Verses 3 and 4, they parallel each other. Each name's Three indicators of the sinful inner life that does not belong in those who know the truth. First, corrupt desires do not belong. Verse 3, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Must not even be a hint is literally, let it not be named among you. May it be so far from us that no one is ever able to point at it and go, look, there it is, there's greed, there's sexual immorality, there's impurity. Because, you know, if that stuff is there, accusers will name it and they'll have a right to. Just think about the shame that comes and that came when the, with the Royal Commission into child sexual abuse that was happening 
often in Christian or so-called Christian places. Think about the public embarrassment it is when you get those health and wealth preaching, private jet flying, diamond flaunting, greedy televangelists. It makes you sick. The church-shaking, marriage-destroying, faith-challenging impact of, of a sex scandal within a church community. It's, it's horribly destructive. These are stumbling blocks for both those outside and inside the church. They don't belong. But they don't have to be so dramatic as the examples I just gave to have a corruptive influence. It may just be a church culture that is turning a blind eye to such things because they're of a form that is relatively acceptable in the world around us. And so we treat them like they're relatively acceptable here too. Now, whether that's a a casual attitude towards the corruption that is pornography, that we just sit with it and tolerate it in our lives or talk about it like it's a normal, healthy thing, Um, the approval of sexual practices which God explicitly doesn't approve of, but we talk about them like they're fine, Um, or seeing personal wealth accumulation as our life's great goal and then going ahead and modelling to our children. That's just greed. We are not the world's church. We are Christ's church. And we're to take after him, not them. We are set apart as God's holy people. And we're to prize that. We're to prize that precious identity and protect it for ourselves, for the sake of the church, for the honour of Christ, whom we are to represent in his world. Now, can I say the only way that these things, which are all sins springing from misplaced desire, will end up not being named among us as a community is if we recognise that they do not belong in our hearts as individual believers in that community. And so we're working hard with God's help and with the help of our brothers and sisters to strive to overcome each of those things. The thing I think about is, if it is unfitting for me to act out, it is unfitting for me to give safe harbour to in my heart and in my mind. Well, the other thing that has no place is corrupt speech. Verse 4, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Now these are outwardly sins of speech, but, but just like immorality, impurity and greed, these are indicators of something going wrong on the inside, of something that's not right and doesn't belong in a Christian. So listen to what Jesus says about words in Matthew 12. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. He's talking about speech. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word or valueless word they have spoken. Now I want to say that this is not a challenge to all humour. This is not saying that Christians can't have a laugh. 
but it does challenge what we might choose to joke about. That's what we've got to hear. It does challenge an inner world if that inner world seems to delight in crudity and mockery and obscenity and things that in God's eyes are shameful. If we detect those things in ourselves, we've got to go, right, that's got to get cleaned out. Aren't there better things to think about? Aren't there better things to talk about? Look, humour is is a a challenging thing. Because on one hand, can I just say, humour is a gift of God that both lightens the heart, stimulates the mind and can sometimes bond people together. Sometimes it even teaches us truth. You know, there are numerous parts of the scripture that overtly use humour. But humour can also easily be the expression of ungodly fixations and motivations. It can be corruptive of others and it can be mean. As Christians, we need to know that sin can express itself in our humour. And I was joking is not a free pass that excuses unholy or harmful speech. You heard Jesus' words. He's not going to consider it a free pass. And by the way, this includes crude or coarse posts or photos on social media. It's not okay. And it should actually matter to us. Enough for us to search our hearts and motivations and for Christ's sake, hold our tongues, not put up that post. Here's what the better option is. It's what Paul says in Philippians, chapter 4, verse 8, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And speak about such things. What should characterise Christian speech, Paul says, is thanksgiving. It's, it's, it's a joyful desire to speak out what is good, the good things of God. But the thing we must see here, and Paul is at pains to point out, is that it really matters. This call to holiness really matters. Recognising our new identity in Christ and living it out really matters. We've got to take this seriously. You see, all these commands are a response to very, very important and critical truths. Salvation is not a game. It's not a lifestyle preference. It is what it says it is, salvation. In other words, we're being saved from something, a deadly alternative. We must not take our new identity as God's people bought with the blood of Christ for granted or or be deceived into thinking that our old life wasn't that bad and we can just keep playing around in it. Look at verse 5. For of this you can be sure, Paul says, no immoral, impure or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. It doesn't belong. And if that's the life you want to go and live, you don't belong. Let no one deceive you with empty words. If someone tells you otherwise, they are deceiving you. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Do not be partners with them. 
See, you bet holiness comes at a cost. It comes at the cost of not fitting into a world that has rejected God. It comes at the cost of not just conforming ourselves to the attitudes and actions that surround us. It's actually about swimming against the tide. But the cost of remaining in that world and sharing its desires and behaviours, Paul says, is a far greater price. Never forget it. Well, if the focus up until now has been on what we are getting rid of, the remaining verses speak about what we replace it with, what we do actually embrace. Because the Christian life is not all about discarding stuff. It's about turning our hearts and minds to what is good and living it out. That's what's so wonderful about the Christian life. You get to do what is good. Now, for time reasons, we can't cover it. Um, uh, We're going to explore them more in the podcast. But, But there are two particular passages that I want to finish with that capture really how we're now to see our role in the world. First is chapter 5, verses 8 to 10. How are we to think? We've got to remember that you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the truth of, fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth. And find out, search out what pleases the Lord. See, that's what holiness is meant to do. We're meant to shine in the world, not fade into it. We're to seek out what pleases God and then live it. That we might stand out as beacons in this world of what is true and good and right because God is our Father. And the second phrase is verses 15 and 16. We're not to live our lives thoughtlessly or futilely but with understanding and wisdom. Verse 15. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. That phrase there, making the most of every opportunity, could also be translated, and I think this is a a wonderful way of thinking about it, redeeming the season. In other words, our whole lives, thanks to Christ, are a new spring coming from the death of sin's winter. And our task is to just put out green shoots everywhere, redeem the season. The days are evil. And so our role in life is bit by bit in whatever way we can to redeem what we can for the good. Not grieving the Spirit, but being filled with him and bringing praise to God in all we do. Amen.